everything was changing extremely rapidly. New discoveries like x-rays and the telephone and radium and, and things like that were being made all the time. So how could you be certain that there, there weren't some people who could actually talk to the dead? And what if you could, could and what if you could build devices to contact the afterlife? Um, and so, so it really felt like some kind of approaching singularity, some kind of moment, a very special moment of uh, accelerating change. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Hanu uh, is, uh, is, is a wonderful science fiction writer, and, and the, the praise uh, that his fellow science fiction writers uh, uh, heap on him is, is one of the clear uh, signs. Uh, Charles Strauss, uh, the, the, the quote is, I think he might be better at this than I am, um, which is certainly high praise indeed. Uh, but uh, in addition to his literature, uh, he has a PhD in string theory. He's currently CEO for Helix Nano, Nano which is a synthetic biology startup that's based here in the Bay Area. Um, and uh, he's uh, natively from Finland, but has been uh, speaking and writing in multiple languages uh, for most of his life. Um, his new book is called Summerland. We want to thank uh, Borderlands Books uh, here in San Francisco who are selling it along with uh, other books of Hanu's tonight, and he will be signing them after the talk. Uh, please join me in giving a big round of applause for Hanu Rajimini. Hello, and uh, thank you for having me, Michael. Um, after all the uh, upcoming talks, I definitely uh, feel an attack of the imposter syndrome coming on, so, so please excuse me. Um, but thanks to Michael also for setting this up and uh, digging up some uh, amazing uh, period details from the 19th century that we'll, we'll get to, and thanks to Otto for drawing these mysterious things that will also be explained later on, and thanks to Andrew and Forrest for the great job with the, with the AV. Um, so, for if you've read my work and or, or followed my my writing career, um, you'll know that uh, for much of that, I've been concerned with uh, what's known as the uh, technological singularity, and I'm sure this audience is mostly uh, or overwhelmingly familiar with it. Um, but it is a term that was coined by Werner Vinge, who actually also has a great long now talk that you you should check out. Um, and what it is is a point in sort of maybe not too distant future where the progress of technology accelerates to the point where all our predictions about the future become meaningless. It's sort of like the technological equivalent of dividing one by zero. And um, in the sort of present day conversations, usually it means, means the emergence of some kind of super intelligent AI that will either destroy humanity or create heaven and earth. Um, and some people are worrying about us actually, actually um, accidentally building that AI right now. Um, now, that's maybe a, a bit ambitious, but certainly there's this uh, sense of an approaching technological rapture, and the people who are serious about the singularity often 
sort of also referred to some kind of technological immortality being achieved through mind uploading or even uh, the super AI creating simulations of people who've lived in the past. Uh, Ray Kurzweil, the author of The Singularity is Near and director of engineering at Google, talks quite openly about wanting to essentially bring back a simulation about it, of, of his uh, dead father. Um, now, I'm not actually personally a hardcore singularitarian, which may surprise some of you, um, but I've always been very intrigued by the concept and took it on as a sort of a challenge to see if I could write uh, a meaningful fictional story about uh, that would be set after the singularity. And that led to, to these books, uh, starting with The Quantum Thief and its sequels. Um, and as, as I was writing them, I, I became aware of this Russian thinker called Nikolai Fedorov, who'd sort of anticipated uh, ideas that sounded very much like the modern idea of the singularity already back in the 1890s. And in the Quantum Thief books, that was just a little side note, but after finishing the books, I kind of was, was intrigued by it and started wondering whether um, there had been times in the past where it felt like the singularity was coming and, uh, and what, did those, what, did, what did it feel like to live in those times. And it turned out that this was very much the case. And the result was my uh, recent novel, Summerland, uh, which just came out. Uh, it is a spy story set in an alternate world where a very different kind of singularity has ha just taken place. Uh, scientists have proven that the afterlife is real and can be contacted by a radio. Um, and it was inspired by uh, real-life Victorian spiritualists, uh, ideas from four-dimensional geometry and uh, etheric physics. And today I want to tell you more about all those crazy ideas and uh, tell you some stories from real history and maybe we can discuss all together what those stories can teach us about our present-day worries and hopes about the singularity. So, to start with, let's go back to uh, back in time, 180 years to, to 1838, and uh, to the invention of the electric telegraph. And um, so, so 180 years ago, Samuel Morse sent the first telegram in the United States, and that was across uh, just two miles of telegraph wire. But uh, telegraph sort of exploded uh, at an exponential rate, and just 10 years later there was 6,000 miles of telegraph cable uh, in the United States. So that's 6,000 miles in just 10 years. Um, and Tom Standage has, has actually called the telegraph uh, network the Victorian internet. And I think that's a, that's a very good parallel. There was this uh, explosion of growth, uh, Wild West period of sort of different competing technologies and different companies, and ultimately uh, sort of consolidation when uh, the Western, Western Telegraph Union was formed. And um, it became sort of a Google of its time, and by uh, the year 1900, it controlled a million miles of telegraph lines. Um, now, very close to where Western Union was headquartered in Rochester, um, was a small town called Hydesville. And uh, in March 31st, 1848, something quite strange happened there. These, these two sisters, Kate and Margaret Fox, started receiving messages from the afterlife. Um, and the messages came uh, as rapping noises that, 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 that had a code, sort of, sort of multiple raps for no, uh, one rap for, for, for yes. So quite a lot like the Morse code in the telegraph. And um, initially, the girls told their family that the messages came from this creature called Mr. Splitfoot, maybe, maybe the devil, but later sort of changed their story and said it was the spirit of a peddler who had been murdered in their, in the, in their home. 
And um, as it happened, the Fox family was friends with uh, a quite an uh, influential radical Quaker family that lived in Rochester. And, and, uh, they, and the Quakers got very, very excited about the possibility of directly communicating with the dead. And, uh, and they sort of formed what became the core of the spiritualist movement. And uh, suddenly there was this explosion of, of mediums. The Fox sisters got hundreds of imitators. They themselves became very famous. And uh, Horace Greeley, the newspaper man and politician, sort of took, took them under his wing. Um, and the timing was sort of right for something like this. The, the US was going through what is now known as the Second Great Awakening. And that was kind of a Protestant religious revival that emphasized the personal relationship with God, sort of came with uh, fascination with the supernatural and, and, uh, and, and, and sort of romanticism. So people got very excited when suddenly there was this, what you could describe as an open source religion uh, that promised direct lines of communication with the dead. Um, and because um, the early spiritualists were associated with groups like Quakers and, and Universalists, um, they were also very much into social reform, so abolition of slavery, uh, women's rights, and, and, and so on. And, and mediums are actually mostly women, so, so that sort of gave them a new kind of voice that helped uh, drive some of those, those issues. Um, but when I kind of looked into this, what really surprised me was uh, how closely the language used to describe mediums uh, was associated with telegraphy. Um, so here's a period drawing that uh, describes a spiritual telegraph sort of uh, crossing the Atlantic. Um, and some mediums actually started using telegraph uh, transmission hardware. Um, so so they, uh, first they took, took sort of existing telegraph hardware to, to channel spirits, and then actually started building their own hardware for, for contacting spirits. Uh, so so here's, here's one, one example, uh, which is an alphabet wheel for communicating with the dead, but it's actually modeled after a contemporary uh, whetstone design, some of the er one of the early alphabet wheels that made it easier for a telegraph operator to read, read the incoming message. So there's this very interesting feedback loop between, between uh, the, the hardware that the mediums used and the hardware that the telegraph operators used. Um, now, the ultimate hardware hacker amongst spiritualists was this very fascinating character called John Murray Spear, and I want to tell you a little bit more about him. Um, I wasn't able to find a good period picture of him, but uh, somehow Michael was able to uncover his business card. So, so here is the front page of his business card. So John Murray Spear was born in 1804 in Boston, and um, as a young man, together with his brother, he became a universalist minister. And he was really a prime example of one of those uh, second, uh, second Great Awakening reformers. Uh, he was a, a prisoner a rights activist. He helped uh, prisoners released from jail uh, to get jobs. He helped to establish the, the Underground Railroad, so, so he helped uh, escaping slaves to, to go to the northern, northern states. And uh, he was actually nearly killed by an angry mob when he um, defended a slave who was accused of murder. Um, and he was initially quite skeptical of spiritualism. But uh, in 1852, he had this very powerful sudden experience. He fell into a trance and was contacted by a group of spirits who called themselves the Electrizizers. Now, that sounds like a superhero team or a superhero villain, <laughs> villain team, but, uh, and that's what it pre pretty much what it was. So these spirits included such luminaries as Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson uh, and, and other very, very uh, smart people. Um, and, um, 
But their message wasn't just about peace and love or, or what had happened to, to John's loved ones. Um, they had had a lot of time to do thinking in the afterlife, and they had come up with entirely new technologies. And they started dictating designs for these inventions that they wanted John to build uh, that were going to change the world. Um, now, one problem um, that spiritualists generally had, and, and which John had, and the spirits had, was that there were so few mediums to start with, and it was also quite hard for a medium to stay in this trance state. Um, so, to solve this problem, John teamed up with uh, another medium called Elizabeth French. Um, so, uh, in, in addition to being a medium, uh, she was an electrical experimenter. And one of the things she had done in the past was try to revive lightning strike victims and victims of drowning by connecting them to batteries. Um, and uh, together they made a suit um, powered by uh, a large set of batteries, a kind of spirit armor that was supposed to amplify the medium's thoughts electrically. Uh, to give the medium a better reception or to turn somebody who wasn't actually a medium into a medium. And um, so they experimented with this suit and wearing the suit they, they also um, realized that they could transmit thoughts to each other. And that led to a very concrete business idea that, that John then had, uh, which was Cyrus Field, um, a famous industrialist, businessman, had just been given a 50-year monopoly to lay the first transatlantic telegraph cable. And John and his spirits thought that this was a really bad idea because it essentially gave uh, private ownership uh, for this communications infrastructure that enab could enable all kinds of uh, oppression and, and, uh, and censorship and who knows what, things we can very much relate to today. And uh, so in response, uh, the electricizers proposed that John should build a decentralized network of mediums um, building a sort of mesh network of towers where mediums would sit wearing their spirit armor, of course, and pass telepathic messages from one another. And this would be free to use to everybody, so sort of a network neutrality would, would apply. Uh, and um, and, and John, John and his, his associates actually went out and tried to raise uh, funding, funding for this, but sort of failed to, to get it off the ground. But uh, they, they did open source all their designs. So, so they, they published a newspaper article that said that all these instructions will be available to whatever parties who are disposed to attempt the practical realization of the scheme. So to any entrepreneurs here, uh, you want to do an ICO, it's all, all up for grabs. Um, but John soon got busy with uh, an even more ambitious project. And uh, that project, uh, shown here on the left, was called the New Motor, or the New Motive Power. So John, together with a group of followers, went to a remote location called High Rock, and they started building it. And it was basically a perpetual motion machine. It was going to collect limitless amounts of energy from the spirit realm and replace the steam engine. But it was also going to have a soul and it was going to be able to self-replicate, make copies of itself, and completely transform all fields of industry. So in other words, it was exactly the kind of super AI that Elon Musk and other people are, are now worried about. And um, making it included some quite elaborate rituals. Uh, basically, one of John's female followers was supposed to symbolically give birth to, to the electric infant that was going to be the soul of the machine. 
Um, there are some amazing descriptions of uh, the ritual uh, that they perform to, to make the machine come alive. John wearing the spirit armor and suddenly there being this umbilical uh, thread of energy that connected him to the machine that the mediums who were present could, could see. Um, and apparently the machine did start moving. The, these, these rotors uh, on top did start uh, slowly, slowly spinning. But uh, sort of an exponential takeoff did not happen. And also John's wife, Betsy, wasn't too happy to hear that there had been some kind of sexual element to, to this ritual. And, um, and as a result, his, his reputation was ruined. And, um, and, and finally, to add insult to injury, uh, a gang of local young men got together and, and broke into to the High Rock uh, house and, and wrecked the, the new motor. Um, and, you know, so there was an actual angry mob. So, uh, and for all we know, they, they stopped this, uh, a spiritualist singularity from, from happening. Um, <laughs> But uh, this did not discourage John Murray's spear. Uh, he just did a pretty hard pivot to, to, into making spirit-powered sewing machines. Um, and there's a bit of in interesting historical context there. Uh, in 1840, Cyrus Howe had invented the first modern sewing machine, uh, actually based on a design that came to him in a dream. Um, and, and it sort of, sort of uh, gave a lot of uh, women uh, a new source of income and, and sort of eased their, their drudgery. Um, but it was still hand-cranked, and uh, John and his friends thought that they could uh, use the new motor or, or variant to, to uh, drive it instead um, and, uh, and completely emancipate women from, from this sort of uh, hand-based hand, uh, hand sewing. And, um, and he started a company, and this time it was a bit more successful. They did actually succeed in, in building uh, a sewing machine that was initially clockwork powered, but they, they sort of also fell back to a hand crank design. But it was much cheaper than, than the competing versions, so they did have some success in, in selling them. Um, but then the Civil War came, and, um, and John decided to uh, take his family and uh, go to England for a while. So he thought there would be a new market there for sewing machines, and he also wanted to make connections to some local spiritualists because the spiritualism movement was taking, taking foot there, and he's sort of the other side of his business card from that period where, where he talks about being guided by these beneficent spirit intelligences and, and sort of refers to seances that he held uh, in his house uh, in Regent Square uh, every Wednesday. Um, and I kind of want to, to want us to travel now with him to, to Britain and, and uh, um, uh, sort of elaborate a little bit more on what was going on there. Uh, one of the very frequent attendees in uh, John's seances was a gentleman called Alfred Russell Wallace, who uh, is shown here with Charles Darwin. And uh, together with Darwin, Wallace, of course, was one of the creators of the theory of evolution, and they published a key paper on that together. And like Darwin, um, Wallace sort of went on all these brave expeditions to collect huge amounts of zoological samples, including sort of famous flying frog. Uh, but unlike Darwin, he actually came from a quite a poor working class background, like, like John Murray's Spear. Uh, and later in his life, he ended up selling most of the samples he had, he had gathered, like 80,000 80, different species of beetles, for example, uh, just to support himself. And um, he was more of an idealist than, than Darwin was, and he, he was actually pretty uncomfortable with some of the implications of evolution. Um, and he was convinced that there was something about the human consciousness that wasn't just a product of evolution, that, and that survived after death. And so he got really excited when uh, people started to practice spirit photography. So here, here he is with his 
the spirit of his, his mother. So taking, taking pictures of spirits using the, the new photography equipment that was available was a common practice. And this convinced him that there was indeed life after death. And like many Victorian scientists, he became a committed spiritualist. So, uh, and Wallace is actually a great example of uh, how a lot of the uh, British intellectuals felt at the time. Theory of evolution was really this nuclear bomb that exploded amongst them. Um, if you were a really serious scientist, you couldn't really ignore it, but um, taking, it, uh, taking its implications seriously was almost untenable because it implied that there was no God, no afterlife, no basis for, for human morality. So many of them, like, like Wallace, sort of ended up grasping at straws to, uh, to find ways to reconcile science uh, with the afterlife. And um, the center of, of those efforts uh, was the Society of Psychical Research, which was founded in 1882. It actually still exists, uh, but uh, doesn't quite have the stature that it used to. Um, here's one of its founders, Frederick Myers, who was a poet and philosopher who, who coined the word telepathy. And what SBR's mission was to, was to take a hard scientific look at ghosts, mediums, apparitions, psychics, and, and, and so on. And its members and uh, early presidents included a pretty much all-star cast of politicians, artists, and scientists, Nobel laureates, uh, John Ruskin, H.G. Wells, Mark Twain, uh, William Thompson, who discovered the electron, William Gladstone, uh, many others. And... Um, um, they, they really sort of, sort of uh, had a hard go at collecting a lot of data uh, about um, what uh, famous mediums were able to achieve, what sort of uh, contact with, ordinary, with dead uh, the ordinary people had, what sort of experiences with telepathy people, people had, and so on. Um, but some questions really still remained. Uh, like, if there were really spirits, uh, where were they? Um, and if the soul was not the product of evolution, then... What was it made of? And um, that was sort of um, some, th th those answers to those questions could maybe be found in physics. And one of the most prominent physicists of uh, the SBR was this guy called William Crookes, uh, with his amazing moustache. Uh, and uh, his greatest invention is the thing he's holding there, uh, the cathedrae tube, or Crookes tube, as it was also called, which later allowed Röntgen to discover X-rays and also became a key component of the radio and uh, sort of uh, an ancestor of the vacuum tube in the early computers and so on. Uh, but he was also a very committed spiritualist. At some point, he actually traveled uh, to the U.S. to interview the Fox sisters that we met earlier and concluded that they were definitely the real thing. So, um, so he then also sponsored uh, mediums who wanted to come to, to, to Britain. And uh, at one point, uh, he, was, uh, he had a visitor, this American medium called Henry Slade, uh, when he got another visitor uh, from Germany, a, an astrophysicist called Johann Zellner. And Zellner had a hypothesis about the afterlife that he wanted Crookes and Slade to help him to test. And um, so what Zellner did was uh, he gave Slade uh, an unknotted string, so a piece of string that, that uh, was just a loop with um, uh, the, the ends uh, sealed together with wax so that you, you couldn't, couldn't open it, and asked him if the, uh, the spirits that Slade was communicating with could, could make a knot in the string. Um, and it turned out they could. Slade gave, gave him, uh, in short order, a sort of, sort of a knotted version, version of the string. And then uh, Zollner tried some other experiments. Could the spirits sort of, sort of make two solid wooden rings join together seamlessly? And, and sure enough, they could. Uh, and, and a few other similar tricks. Now, you might think that, that uh, Slade was just a very good magician. 
But Zollner actually became convinced this was proof that spirits existed in the fourth dimension. So just to let that sink in for a moment, spirits existed in the fourth dimension. Um, so a few basic uh, facts from, from topology and, and geometry. Uh, in three dimensions, if you try to introduce a knot to an unknotted string, the, uh, either the, the string has to be open or, or the string has to somehow pass through itself. But in four dimensions, the string actually has room to go around itself. And you can, uh, in four dimensions, sort of uh, introduce a knot uh, into, into a closed loop without, without, uh, without opening the loop. Um, and um, uh, Zollner wrote his conclusions up in a, in a book called Transcendental Physics. And whatever you think of his, his conclusions, uh, he definitely had a huge impact on Victorian-era thinking about the afterlife. It sort of popularized the idea that, that the spirits could actually exist in the fourth dimension. And uh, moreover, uh, afterlife could be studied using the methods of physics. Now, this talk actually almost became uh, a talk entirely about the fourth dimension uh, in the Victorian era. There's a fascinating character about, called, called Charles Hinton who popularized a lot of these ideas and I kind of don't really have time to, to go into it, but in the Q&A, please ask me about the fourth dimension, Charles, Charles Hinton. Um, but there was a lot of other things going on in physics at the time. Um, so James Clerk Maxwell uh, had just unified uh, electricity with magnetism. So he'd created this set of uh, famous equations that, that perfectly described all electromagnetic phenomena. And, um, uh, and it also, his, his equations also predicted that there should be these electromagnetic waves propagating through, through empty space, which really confused Victorians because uh, uh, nothing should be able to propagate through, through empty space. Um, and um, so, so um, this was explained through the idea that there was this substance called luminiferous ether that, that filled all of space. It was everywhere, inside us, in, in, uh, in the vacuum of space, everywhere, this sort of extremely sort of ephemeral uh, but, but uh, perfectly non-viscous fluid through which all sort of uh, wave motion like, like light uh, propagated. Um, and by, by that point, people had also discovered atoms. Uh, Mendeleev had come up with the periodic table of atoms, so people knew there were different kinds of atoms, uh, but nobody really knew what, what atoms actually were. And um, Lord Kelvin, one of the sort of giant physicists of, of all time, um, came up with a really intriguing theory. So incidentally, he played a key role in building that uh, transatlantic cable that uh, John Murray Speer was so worried about. Um, and his wonderful ideas was this. So if ether was this perfect fluid, um, what if there were vortices in that perfect fluid? Uh, and a few years earlier, um, a physicist called Helmholtz had shown that if you have a perfect fluid with a vortex, that vortex is sort of a permanent, indivisible object, just like an atom. But then, how did you explain that all the, all the atoms were, were different from one another? One another? And, uh, and so Kelvin took the idea one step further and proposed that atoms were actually knotted vortices, so vortices that loop back into themselves and, and, and make knots, form knots. Um, so if you imagine a smoke ring, that, that, is, that is also a knot. That's pretty much the visual idea he had in mind. But he, he worked it out mathematically uh, quite well. And, uh, and here's actually a, a vortex knot that people made uh, in a lab in University of Chicago uh, just, just this year. So, um, so it's uh, definitely a real, real phenomenon. So atoms as vortex knots, knots was Kelvin's idea. And um, um, people started following up on this, most prominently a Scottish mathematician uh, called Peter Tate. And, uh, and he had another brilliant insight. So, so if atoms are vortex knots, what if you could reproduce Mendeleev's periodic table of elements 
by classifying all possible knots. So he set out to, to develop the mathematical tools needed to do that and, um, and actually invented uh, the still very active ongoing discipline in mathematics called knot theory. Um, but he failed to match up uh, his table of knots with the periodic table. Um, and at first he was discouraged, but then uh, when he thought, thought uh, about it a bit more deeply, he realized that besides atoms, there was something else that was eternal and indivisible and, and unique, and that was the soul. Uh, and with his collaborator, uh, Balfour Stewart, he published a book called The Unseen Universe, where they essentially argue that uh, a soul, every, every, every one of our souls, is a knot in the ether, just like Kelvin had, had proposed. And uh, since to create these knots, like Zellner had shown, you need access to the fourth dimension, then obviously God and spirits and angels and perhaps other supernatural beings were all four-dimensional. Um, now, it's worth pausing here a little bit. I mean, this is all pretty wild stuff, uh, at least to, to our sort of, uh, from our present-day eyes. But um, people like Wallace and Crookes and Tate and Kelvin, I mean, they, they, they weren't cranks. I mean, they were some of the greatest biologists, physicists, and mathematicians of, of their age, perhaps of, of any age. And they were great system builders who sort of had this overarching need to, to fit everything, everything together, including life and, and, and afterlife and, uh, and everything. And uh, sometimes they were credulous, especially when confronted with very charismatic or sometimes attractive mediums. Um, but if you look at it from their point of view, in their lifetimes, everything was changing extremely rapidly. New discoveries like x-rays and the telephone and radium and, and things like that were being made all the time. So how could you be certain that there, there weren't some people who could actually talk to the dead? And what if you could, could and what if you could build devices to contact the afterlife? Um, and so, so it really felt like some kind of approaching singularity, some kind of moment, a very special moment of uh, accelerating change. Um, now, one of the most respected scientists who was also a spiritualist was uh, this gentleman here who's sort of doing some exercise uh, in, his, in his home, uh, Sir Oliver Lodge, um, who very much uh, pursued both electro electromagnetic research and study of spirits and telepathy as two sides of the same coin. Um, he's today famous for being one of the pioneers of radio, as well as inventing the spark plug and uh, the loudspeaker. Um, so he invented a device called the Coherer, which was like a simple electromagnetic wave detector. Uh, and uh, he spent much of his later career sort of uh, competing with Marconi um, in commercializing uh, the radio. And he was also an active member of the, the SPR. But he was very respected. He, he gave a lot of public lectures, and he was seen as this very, very reliable scientific figure. So... Um, when Frederick Myers, the, one of the founders of SPR that we, we met earlier, uh, decided to do an experiment as he sort of felt his end of his life was approaching, uh, he gave uh, a lodge a sealed letter uh, that was only to be opened after, after Myers' death. Uh, and he was going to try to pass on a message from beyond that, that was supposed to be matched to, to the contents of the letter. And... Um, it seemed like the experiment was successful. So in 1901, a group of women at the very highest level of British society started receiving messages from Myers uh, via automated writing. And, and at least according to some interpretations, the messages matched the contents of the letter that Lodge had been given. So, so one of the um, um, kind of key mediums where, some of the key mediums were Alice Fleming up, up on the left, uh, who was the uh, sister, of, sister of the famous writer Rudyard Kipling. Uh, and uh, Alice also co-authored some of uh, Kipling's early 
Indian tales. Um, as a side note, Kipling also wrote a great little short story called The Wireless, which is about contacting the afterlife with radio. Um, another uh, medium receiving messages from, uh, from Myers was uh, Winifred Coombe Tennant, up there on, on the right, also a very remarkable woman, a suffragist, a member of parliament, and later the uh, British delegate to the League of Nations. And there were a few, few others, others as well. And um, they, all, the, all the letters from Myers were uh, shared amongst this very, very elite group. And the hub of the group was the sort of moustached gentleman uh, on the bottom, bottom left, uh, Arthur Balfour, who uh, had been the president of the SPR. And at the time when these letters were arriving, he was the prime minister of Britain. Um, and uh, later he got the nickname Bloody Balfour for sort of cruelly putting down unrest in Northern Ireland. And he was actually the one who signed the uh, declara British Declaration to uh, found the, the state of Palestine. So a pretty important guy. Uh, his brother Gerald in the middle, middle was sort of equally accomplished. And uh, they had a third brother, Francis, who died very young at the age of 30, uh, many years uh, before, while climbing Mont Blanc. And he, he was known as, uh, for, for, his, for his talent in biology, and people were saying that he would be the successor to Darwin, but he, he died before he could uh, realize that. But in any case, this group circulated all these uh, letters arriving from Frederick Myers from beyond, from the afterlife, via automated writing. And um, it was kind of a sh shared hypertext, if you like. They kept all this very secret. Um, and these letters were all interconnected, seemingly, even though different people received them. There were symbols that recurred from classics, from the Bible, from Shakespeare, and so, so on. And there were so many interconnections that ultimately the group became entirely convinced that th this was real. This was Myers talking to them from the afterlife. Other people started talking to them from the afterlife, including uh, Jane Littleton, who'd been sort of this lost love of Arthur Balfour when he was young, uh, who'd also died very young, uh, and also Francis Balfour, uh, the, the, uh, the sort of third Balfour brother. And uh, there was a, this big picture, this, this plan or a story that started to emerge from the letters. And um, so, so what Myers was, was saying uh, was that a kind of Darwinian evolution continued in the afterlife. And, and as Myers and, uh, and Francis Balfour had entered the afterlife, they had gotten a lot smarter. Um, and there'd been a sort of scientific revolution in the afterlife. Uh, people in the afterlife had perfected the engineering of souls. And in fact, Francis Balfour was leading a team of spirit scientists who were designing a perfect soul, uh, a sort of perfectly engineered spirit child whose task would be to deliver humanity from chaos. And, uh, and of course, this perfect soul only needed a vessel to be incarnated into. Now, again, a bit of context. This was 1912 at this point. And the British elite had this uh, kind of widespread sense of crisis approaching, chaos in the world. There were socialists and anarchists and feminists and suffragists and sort of, sort of unrest in Europe and all these alliances unraveling. Uh, so it was pretty clear that somebody, somebody needed to, to save the world. Um, so two members of this group, uh, so Arthur's living brother Gerald in the middle and uh, Winifred uh, up on the right, sort of took one for the team and they, they had an affair. They were instructed by, by the spirits to have an affair. Uh, and Winifred's much older husband actually knew about it, but, uh, but sort of maintained stiff upper, upper lip and, and said nothing about it. And um, so Winifred got pregnant and gave, the birth, gave birth to the vessel of this perfect engineered soul. Um, and I just can't help thinking how, how remarkable this story is. Story is. I mean, this is happening, happening at the sort of highest levels of, of British politics and society, uh, combining all these, these ideas about eugenics and evolution and engineering applied in this very otherworldly context. 
So uh, here is the spirit child um, at the age of one and then at the age of, uh, uh, of 30. And uh, he was called Henry Coombe Tennant, uh, born in 1913. And as far as we know, he wasn't the Messiah. He, he didn't save the world from, from chaos, unfortunately. Um, but he did have a pretty interesting life. Um, he studied in Cambridge. He, he met um, uh, Wittgenstein, was taught by Ludwig Wittgenstein, the famous philosopher, uh, fought in World War II and uh, got imprisoned, uh, escaped a German prison camp by himself, fled across Europe, uh, ended up working for uh, the British Intelligence Service, for MI6, together with Kim Philby, who, who would uh, later be revealed as uh, one of the most... Uh, uh, one of the deepest Soviet moles, uh, double agents of, of all time. And it was really Henry's life that kind of made me, made me decide that uh, uh, Summerland had to, be, had to be a spy story and he was an inspiration for one of the protagonists. Um, now, later on, Henry's life sort of quieted down, um, uh, and, but in the 50s, he did try to contact his mother, Winifred, through, through, uh, through, through, uh, through a medium, probably to complain about, about uh, the kind of weird circumstances of his birth or, or too high expectations. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, it's not clear if he succeeded, but soon after that, he did go away to become a Catholic monk and lived for, for the rest of his life in solitude. So... Uh, it is actually the kind of biography you can never put in fiction because nobody would, nobody would believe it. Um, but one, one of the um, uh, fascinating facts about, um, about Henry was that uh, he was in Cambridge at the same time as another uh, interesting historical figure, Alan Turing, and they probably attended some of the same uh, lectures uh, uh, by Wittgenstein. Now, Turing, of course, is the famous mathematician who, who has a pretty good claim for being the father of the, the modern computer. Um, but if you kind of look at Turing's writings carefully, um, you find that he's not this ultra-rationalist mathematician that you, you might imagine any more than the uh, sort of Victorian scientists were. Uh, he had this tragic lost love uh, in his teenage years called Christopher Morecambe, uh, who, who died, died young, and then Turing, like many of the other characters in this story, then spent the rest of his love, life mourning. And uh, in letters to, to Christopher Morgan's mother, uh, one of those on the right, Nature of Spirit, uh, up there, um, he talks about his belief that there is something beyond the body, a spirit that uh, a body sort of attracts uh, into itself and which is maybe later to be able to move on. And it, it sort of sounds quite a lot like uh, what the, the earlier Victorians were, were saying about how they, they envisioned a scientific afterlife. Um, and it goes deeper than that. Um, uh, so one of his best-known papers, or perhaps his most best-known paper, on com computational machinery and intelligence, which is the one where he describes what we now call the Turing test, where, which is sort of a criterion for whether a computer can be said to think or to be intelligent or not, um, where you have a judge trying to distinguish a computer uh, from, from a human just through, through teletyping, uh, which uh, is quite a popular competition amongst AI people today. And actually quite similar to how, how the, to these telegraphing mediums communicate with the spirits as well. Um, but if you read this paper closely, uh, there is a segment where he argues that if there are such things as souls, then a sufficiently complex computer should also be able to attract a soul. Uh, and, and be immortal in the same way that, that uh, human beings are. And 
Well, it seems that right now uh, there are many people trying to do just that. Um, so there is, um, in recent years, uh, a so-called recreation service industry has, has emerged, which tries to create chatbots that recreate either dead or, or living people to the point where maybe one day they can pass the Turing test, and they already have hundreds of thousands of users. Um, so maybe that's one thing that is different today from, from the Victorian era. When we start getting crazy ideas about how, how the afterlife might work, we can actually try to build it. Um, but having sort of looked at his services, personally I suspect that maybe 100 years from now, they will seem sort of strange and a bit misguided to us sort of in the same way that, that sort of Tate's Unseen Universe or, or Spears' New Motor uh, seem to us now. Um, and actually, in the end, I, I sort of like what John Murray Spear was doing. Um, so he was building these spirit machines, but his goal was not to achieve transcendence or immortality, but to free slaves, to emancipate women and power sewing machines, to solve very practical and mundane problems. And even if your technology is powered by spirits, that's, that's what it's really for. Uh, but, but there are these, these times in history when science and technology change faster than, than we can really handle. And then we do have this tendency that you see over and over again in these stories to mystify them. You, you turn them into, into kind of religion, you look kind of some sort of, for some sort of transcendence or, or, or a savior in them, a spirit child or, or a messiah or a new motor uh, that can save the world. But really, uh, in the end, uh, it's all up to us. Thank you. So, when um, was it the when when they were creating the was the spirit child? What was what was his uh, was his, his the spirit child Hen the Henry, spirit child? Henry 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 Coombe Tennant? How did that interact with their Christian faith, or or, or was or is, is do you, do you see how religion? Uh, I mean, is, are there are there still people that are you know holding religion? How does it intermingle with with the uh, the, the the more spiritualist side? Yeah, I, I, that's a very interesting question. I, I think sort of the, the um, uh, what's sort of interesting about spiritualism and how it emerged uh, is it sort of, in the US it had this uh, boost from, from technologies like the telegraph driving social change and then in, in Britain it was really sort of enmeshed with the, the uh, sort of empirical scientific method. So, so the idea was that this was actually, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe um, you didn't necessarily have to uh, all reconcile all of it with Christian beliefs. I mean, uh, Arthur Balfour was, was quite skeptical about Christianity, but, but if you had something that, that you could actually empirically verify yourself, then that was something you could, you could rely on. And, and, we've, and it's fascinating to see this going on at the upper echelons of society. Did, did you get in your research any sense of what was happening at, at other levels? Was, was there a spiritualist fascination going on uh, in, in the working class, or, or was it traveling? No, absolutely. I mean, I mean you can see that, that, that that's how it starts in the U.S. I mean, that's, that's really sort of, sort of this uh, uh, more, more working class movement, usually, usually coupled with socialism. And there was, there was some of that also, also in Britain. Uh, one of the sort of early utopian socialists um, 
in Britain was a guy called Robert Owen, who, who was a much more working-class guy who Wallace actually studied, studied, uh, studied with, who, who was also a spiritualist. So uh, there was, I mean, I, I kind of chose to focus on, on the, the upper echelons because there's this interesting trans transition from, from the working class to, to the very scientific and, and political elite, but, but there was definitely similar sentiment all across the board. And, um, and, and actually, what, uh, the sort of really interesting thing um, that, that I alluded to was that there were writers like, like Hinton who popularized some of the, these more highfalutin scientific ideas to, to the popular audience. So a lot of, lot of people were reading about these things in, in, uh, in, in newspapers and periodicals and so on. And, and uh, yeah, so, so it was very widespread. Um, and uh, Joe, you're out there with the microphone, right? Joe's got the microphone, so uh, get, get Joe's attention. He will be passing around and I'll be calling on. And also uh, for folks that are watching on the live stream, uh, you can put your own questions in uh, to the chat there. Um, so, uh, one more question before we go to, to the audience. So, um, as you said, these are some of the leading, uh, mm. the leading minds of the time, um, and they were very accomplished in traditional science, and then were also in areas we would consider fringe right now. W were there areas where you kind of saw them uh, uh, bounce back into more conventional science, or, or things that progressed scientific research, because it's still a time when there were a lot of discoveries going on, um, or, or did it kind of stay on the fringe and never, uh, uh, we don't get a lot of benefit from, from this imagination now? Well, I, I think like if you look at a figure like, like Sir Oliver Lodge, I mean, um, uh, I don't know if he would necessarily have pursued uh, real-life electromagnetic research had he not also been interested in, in sort of spirits and mediums and figuring out not just sort of how machines could communicate, but how, how brains could communicate without an intervening medium. So, so I think that that same framework was driving that, that research as well. I mean, uh, there, there were others who were more skeptical, like uh, James, James Kirk Maxwell, who was great friends with Peter Tate, was very, was, wasn't buying any of it. Darwin attended a seance with, with Sir Oliver Lodge, and he, he, he thought uh, the, the person, uh, the lady, lady Yusupin Palladino was a complete fraud. Uh, so not everybody kind of bought into this, but, but like there were uh, definitely many major figures who did. And, and, and I think there was a feedback loop uh, that, that probably had some benefits to, to actual research as well. And in some ways maybe it kept their momentum going because they were, they, were, they were exploring more, looking for <clears throat> the spirit feedback. Yeah, I think there's a general phenomenon in, in, in science that we, we often fail to recognize, which, does, which is that sometimes scientific discoveries do come from, from sort of really weird, weird uh, un unconventional ideas. Like um, uh, Copernicus and Kepler uh, introduced the heliocentric model, not because they, they had really any scientific or empirical basis for it, because, but because Copernicus thought that uh, there must be this uh, central uh, god-like force that, that radiates from the sun that, that sort of keeps everything in its, in its orbit and, and uh, the circle is perfect, so, so therefore everything has to be in circular orbits. And, and so there's kind of this, this beauty or, or mystical argument almost. And, and uh, that does occasionally uh, recur almost even in modern physics in fields like string theory where you make these arguments from beauty and elegance uh, which, which aren't necessarily empirical at all. I think we've got a question back there. Question, can you hear me? Hold on one second. Uh, they'll turn it up for you. Just make sure to hold it very close. Can you hear me now? Um, so I know that there is a spiritualist church here in the city at Franklin and Clay. Hmm. And I'm just wondering if you, in your research, had occasion to go there or if you looked into uh, that church at all. Is it a, like the only one in the U.S. or, or is there a 
a group of them, a gang of them? Um, so I didn't go there. The, the book and the research were mostly, uh, the research and, uh, and the writing were mostly done uh, in the UK and, and Belgium, so as I wasn't living here yet uh, when, when most of it was, was written. But, um, uh, but John Murray Spear, for example, did spend quite a bit of time in San Francisco, and, and I'm sure there are many spiritualist churches and communities all across the US and, and, and the world still, uh, but I haven't visited them personally. And, and of all this stuff, are there, are there remnants that you see um, through lines that, that continue through to today? I mean, do you see any sign that, that whether in, in, in Europe or elsewhere, that there are people that never stop believing? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's a, I actually had one review of Summerland that, that sort of uh, basically uh, loves, loves the writing, but, but uh, says that all the metaphysics is completely wrong, and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and that, that sort of gives references that I should, uh, I should look into that will, will sort of put me on the right path. But, um, no, so, so the, the, yeah, of, of course, like, the, there, there is, um, like, I, I, don't think, I don't think spiritualism is as near mainstream uh, as it was in sort of Victorian times or after World War I, but it's definitely still a real existing system of, of, of thought, and there are people who genuinely very much believe that they, they can contact the dead, dead but, but sort of the, um, the, 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 I kind of focused more on the, the um, earlier stuff because the, the idea in Summerland really is that let's look at a world that diverges from our world around 1890 and, and let's see, see where it goes. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm, I feel as though you're in a very soft way drawing the parallel from the 1990s to the 1890s um, or the world where you know the singularity or the juicero that we're going to believe in these things um, to a level that um, that imbues them with the power that they may not have. And I, but I, I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on the, the parallels of the 1890s to, to now. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, uh, I, I guess in the beginning I, I laid out my, my cards by saying I'm not a, not a singularitarian. Uh, now, uh, it's undeniable that we've had incredible advances in recent years in AI and machine learning, but um, I, I just feel that um, there are these failure modes of thinking that uh, are very easy to, to fall into, where, where you, you sort of project uh, or imbue the new technology with a supernatural power, and, and, and uh, quite quickly from that you progress into technological afterlives and, and, and immortality and, and raising the dead, and, and then you are not very far from religion. And, and, I, I, did, and I do feel uh, that there are some signs of that in, in the current, current discourse, um, and maybe, maybe some, some vocal, vocal, vocal minorities who think along those lines. But, um, uh, but it's, it's sort of interesting to really look at the historical parallel. History doesn't repeat itself, but it, but it rhymes, as is, is often, often said. I think it's rhyming, definitely, in that area. Uh, Hanu, uh, so uh, I, I've had the pleasure of actually reading Summerland. Um, so uh, the, it, it's actually two questions, but they're closely related. Um, Summerland has a completely well-worked-out worldview based on the spiritualist model. Mm -hmm. Did you, and, and you're a physicist. It, it reeks of both physics and spiritualism in, in a kind of good way. So did you actually work out the entire physics of the uh, uh, interaction with the uh, physical realm and the uh, 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 spiritual realm, Summerland and Winterland? Uh, and secondly, uh, there was a book published in the 1920s called The Mystery of Space by Robert T. Brown, uh, who was a quantum physicist who were the first, and who was trying to actually not get the afterlife, but the notion of 
something bigger than we understand, and the mystery of space was his both mathematical and physics treatise. The book virtually disappeared. Um, but it found it's part of the roots of something here in San Francisco, the Institute for Noetic Sciences, hmm. uh, which also had a similar view of something bigger than humanity that we were in touch with. Hmm. So question, did you encounter the mystery of space? And did you actually work out the whole physics of the <laughs> afterlife, post, pre-life, all, all of the, the ways in which this actually all works? Um, so, so if I um, so to take the second question first, so so yes, I, I did did encounter the mystery of space. Now, uh, is this the Robert T. Brown who who was an African American poet living in in Brooklyn? No, no, um, because so, so then maybe I'm confusing with someone else. But uh, but yes, I did did encounter the the mystery of space. I wasn't aware there's a present day descendant. Oh wow, uh, I would I would I would love to love to see that. Um, uh, and and yes, I, I did sort of try to to the best of my ability to work out at least some of the physics, not down not down to sort of Greg Eganesque level of of actual uh, field equations and Lagrangians, but but to to sort of uh, kind of I mean I think actually one of the um, the core ideas in Victorian physics was being able to visualize things and, and give everything sort of a mechanistic explanation to, to be able to visualize things things in, in your head. So uh, how, uh, how, how sort of different etheric streams or vortices would interact um, uh, or, or, I mean, Hinton, uh, Charles Hinton I referred to was fantastic at this. So, so I did read uh, quite a lot of Hinton's works, which Rudy Rooker has, has edited and, and compiled. Uh, so, and, and I tried to get to the point where I could sort of visualize uh, different types of ether that existed in this world and, and, and how the souls uh, in the afterlife interacted with the living and some, some of the physics. So, so let's talk a little bit about uh, your book, as I'm sure Tor will be thrilled to hear as, as add Summerland to talking about Hinton and Tate throughout the, mm -hmm. the whole thing. So, so you got kind of captivated, it seems like, by this research, or, or how did you know you were going to write a book the whole time, or, or were, what was the process of, and, and tell us something about the arc of this project coming uh, from your research into what became Summerland. Yeah, it was quite a long project in the sense that there was quite a lot of reading in the beginning, but I think at the point where I, where I, where I discovered Henry Coombe Tennant, I realized I had to, had to write something about something, something like this, uh, how, how the sort of Victorian society collided, collided with the afterlife, and the individuals were, that were involved, and uh, and then it took took a bit longer to to work out what that story should be like, and then then realizing it it, it had to be a spy story was also a bit of a revelation, and uh, both because of the uh, sort of intelligence community uh, connections of some of the characters and general connections in Britain between the occult and the and, and the intelligence communities, but also because um, given that it was going to be such a metaphysical story, um, in in some sense being a spy. Uh, is about uncovering layers of reality that, that other people don't know about, uh, and uh, and digging deeper and deeper, perhaps uncovering further and further layers. So, so that felt like a, quite a good metaphor for what was what was happening in the book. Uh, and then then it took some. Uh, it actually took a full draft that that. Uh, my editor and I weren't happy happy with, which sort of got entirely rewritten until it sort of emerged in its in its current form. And um, we haven't even talked. We've talked. To bunch about the Brits, but we haven't talked about the other side, their competitors in this. Do you want to say a, a, a word about the 
who are the other absolutely so patients. so so there's a in, in summerland there's sort of this uh, cold war also going on in the afterlife between between the british empire and the soviet union and um, sort of switching to real history for for a second there's a very interesting thread i didn't have time to go into into um, but how all these ideas especially about the fourth dimension uh, fed into the early days of the soviet union um, so I, I alluded to, to the Russian cosmist uh, uh, Nikolai Fedorov, who sort of anticipated the singularity and resurrecting the dead through technological means in the 1890s. But during the Russian Revolution, he had a bunch of followers in the Soviet Union, uh, prominently including a guy called Leonid Krustin, who was um, kind, of, kind of like the main fixer for the, for the early Bolsheviks. He, he was responsible for... for uh, Getting, getting all the financial resources for, for the Bolsheviks and negotiating some of the early, early trading deals. But he was also a fervent follower of Fedorov, and he believed that uh, Lenin had to be resurrected. Uh, so so he, he has a bunch of friends. They called themselves uh, God builders. So they believed that uh, Lenin had to be cryogenically preserved. And, 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 and how recently had he died? What's, what's uh, the this time? was like, like, he died very, he died, I mean, even while he was still alive, they actually started thinking, uh, we need a religion. Uh, that that sort of hurry so, up and die so we hurry, can resurrect uh, and, and, uh, and and there there was this idea that they would they would turn Lenin into into sort of a godhead of this new religion and um, so so they had they they tried to cryogenically preserve him that that didn't entirely work out uh, so he he was embalmed uh, they had this um, uh, artist. Um, one of the early, early Soviet artists who was really fascinated with the fourth dimension designed his tomb. And it was originally supposed to be this set of cubes that, that represented a hypercube. Of, uh, and, and, uh, and this is Hinton's work based on this is, this, work. this comes from sort of the Hintonian thread, thread of thinking about the fourth, fourth dimension as, as the afterlife. And, um, uh, and, and basically, um, every Soviet home and factory was supposed to then have a replica of this cube as a sort of altar to, to Lenin. Um, and, uh, and then sort of Stalin came along and he, he sort of pressed the reset button by killing most of these people, <laughs> but, but, uh, or having, having them killed. A lot killed. of projects go south. Uh, and, and, um, yeah. uh, so, so, um, but there, there was kind of, you, you could argue that there was this really interesting relationship between uh, death and the Soviet thinking. There was actually this, this tool that could be used to, to, to reshape shape humanity, and Stalin, of course, applied it very judiciously. For that purpose, um, but in in some in the world of Summerland, uh, a lot of those early God Builder attempts actually are successful. So they they succeed in turning Lenin into this uh, godlike being who who then watches over a very different kind of Soviet Union, and Stalin is sort of ends up having a very different role. Um, so and is yeah. there a truth to the comp competition? Obviously, without the spirit world side, but is is there is there a thread of truth to that, uh, or how, how should we think about that as far as um, well? I mean, the there's history. a lot of uh, enormously fascinating spy stuff about uh, the British intelligence service and and sort of early revolutionary Russia and pre-revolutionary Russia. I mean, there's there was evidence that it was the British intelligence service who who had uh, Rasputin killed, mm. um, or or a part of part of that that plot. Uh, there, there's uh, there's a great book I can't remember the name of the author, but there's a book called The Russian Roulette, which uh, as a fantastic sort of sort of uh, edge of your edge of your seat thriller kind of narrative, real historical narrative about those those early days and and uh, the operatives in, in that that world. One of the most interesting characters who is sort of also featured in Summerland is H. D. Wells, who who plugs into that as well. Um, so he traveled to to Russia uh, several times and and um, uh, amongst other things met with Gorky, who also was one of these Hintonian four dimensional uh, uh, think thinkers and. Uh, 
um, and he fell madly in love with this woman called Mora Budberg, um, who was Gorsky, uh, who was uh, Gorky's uh, secretary stroke lover at, at the time, and, uh, and and Mora then later followed uh, Wells to to live in live with him in, in London, and it's pretty clear that he was an, she she was an NKVD agent, uh, so. Um, uh, so, so H.D. Wells got sort of pulled into into weird Soviet-British spy plots, also. Um, but uh, so there, there's a there's a lot more more to that. Uh, question here. There we go. Make sure to hold it close. All right, close enough. That's great. Um, so uh, you said that what sparked this all off was you were looking for other sort of historical analogs for the human experience of accelerating change. Mm -hmm. Was it immediately obvious that the Victorian era was what drew your interest? Did, were there other eras that you sort of considered or researched along the way? Um, I think it was pretty much the, the one that attracted me the most because, because it was sort of the closest to modernity. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I do come from a physics background, so, so I find all the, found all these etheric, gnarly, uh, four-dimensional physics uh, endlessly fascinating. Uh, I mean, you could argue that, that there, there's probably a story like this. This you could tell about the Renaissance or, or, or um, sort of other, other periods of history. I, I, I guess uh, Middle Ages and Black Death were, were kind, of a, kind of a negative example, so sort of, sort of uh, uh, bad, bad singularity. But, um, um, but yeah, if, it, if, if, if not the Victorian era, I'd probably look at the, uh, look, look at the um, uh, Renaissance, actually. And uh, so Helix Nano's sewing machines are coming out. No, so, <laughs> so uh, you have a whole other, um, we should say, your, your, your work in synthetic biology is not in the spirit realm uh, for the most part, correct? <laughs> what, right. what, are you, what are you doing with, uh, tell, us, tell us a bit about uh, what Helix Nano is and how, um, how do, you, do you hold those two things in your head? Is, is, are, they, are they separate things or are there relations between your fiction and your scientific uh, work and business mm -hmm. work? Yeah, so, so, so Helix Nano is a uh, uh, startup focusing on uh, figuring out different new, new ways to deliver synthetic genes into, into the human body to, to enable us to, to reprogram our biology and cure disease in the new way. I, I uh, uh, sort of co-founded that with a guy called Nikolai Arashenko, who's one of George Church's PhD students, so, so we're, we're, we have some familiarity with the mammoth Mammoth project uh, through through George, um, and and sort of being the CEO of Helix Nano is very much my 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 day job. Uh, so so I typically do my my writing writing uh, early early in the morning. But um, but I am now working uh, on a new book, which uh, sort of definitely bridges both realms. So I'm writing a near future thriller about uh, biohackers, about a teenage girl who joins an underground biohacker community to to cure her little brother's cancer. Um, so, so I think uh, in that context, it's sort of useful to have some insider knowledge or, or, or deep, deep knowledge of what's going on in synthetic biology. Uh, and we're, we're, we're almost out of time, uh, but you're going to stick around, you're going to sign books, and you'll talk to folks. Please come up, and obviously there's more to talk about, <laughs> and I'm sure you guys have a lot more questions. Um, let me ask you something. So, so you have, um, you wrote a story recently about blockchain, which mm -hmm. you mentioned in the intro, that, that uh, for the MIT Technology Review. You also participated as a judge, I think, in a, a, uh, a contest about UBI stories. It was kind of an yep. open call for, for that. Um, you know, we're big believers at Long Now that science fiction is, is inspirational and helps us kind of culturally. We had a, a great talk by Annalie Newitz earlier this year, um, thinking about how, um, uh, how, how science fiction is part of the scientific pursuit. 
Um, but it seems like this is a more sort of direct, rather than kind of taking inspiration, it's almost like problem solving happening in fiction and science fiction of, 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 or of, of sort of directly kind of interrogating a new technology. And, and uh, I think that uh, Annalie talked about, you know, kind of modeling it in culture in a way. Um, how do you think about that? And does that seem like a, a trend and a good trend to you? What, what, are, what are your thoughts, on, especially being a scientist as well as, as, as a, uh, an author? Yeah, so so I think it's definitely definitely a trend. Uh, Carl Schroeder talks a lot about uh, scenario fiction, so taking a, a new piece of technology and putting into it, it into sort of a context of a human conflict or, or or a human problem that that the characters have to solve. And I think that's a, that's a, can be a very powerful way to sort of discover interesting failure modes or at least interesting questions to ask about future technologies. I, I think the the power of fiction. The power of narrative that it is that it can, in an immersive way, to put us inside these these imaginary worlds and sort of, um, especially, uh, I mean, even though we obviously have uh, TV and uh, Netflix and, and and so on, I, I think written uh, prose is still very powerful because it gives us a unique way to experience that world from through through somebody's consciousness from from the inside, and I think. You can you can then see things that you you'd otherwise miss. I don't think it's very good for predicting the future. I, I, I think uh, it's it's very much about uh, scenarios <laughs> that uh, Peter is very familiar with. Uh, but from really from sort of human exper experiential point of view, what would these futures look like? Would how would they feel like? Uh, would we like to live in them? I think I think it's sort of uh, fiction is a great vehicle for posing those kinds of questions. That's great. And uh, Summerland is out now, and is, it seems to be getting a good reception. Are you happy with, with the... That's great. Um, well, great. Well, you're going to stick around for a bit. Thanks again to Borderlands, who are, are selling books in the back. We will have him, at, uh, that, and more of your books back there. Um, I have a long now challenge coin for you, uh, encouraging you to seize the millennium, Carpe Millennium. <laughs> uh, thank you all for being great. Uh, great audience tonight. Please do stick around and, and come up and ask questions. Hopefully get a book and, and he'll sign it. And, and thank you again. Big round of applause for Hannah. Thank, thank you. If you enjoyed this talk, we hope you'll subscribe to hear more. You might also like Long Now's other podcast, Seminars About Long-Term Thinking, with more than 200 more long-term thinking lectures hosted by Stuart Brand. Subscribe to both at longnow.org slash podcast or wherever you like to listen.